Welcome back to Sound Insight. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, we praise you, thank you, we adore you, we love you, we bless you. We praise your holy name, Lord. And we ask that the Holy Ghost would come down upon us and anoint us, and that the Blessed Mother, Our Lady, would crown us with her mediatrics of graces intercession. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All angels and saints, pray for us. Carrie, what I just did there was, I, I, it might have been a little bit irreverent. Did you notice what I did? No. I started off with charismatic, we praise you, we bless you, we adore you. And then I said, may the Holy Ghost fall upon us. I used the traditional way of naming the Holy Spirit. You're blending. I'm You're blending, merging. synthesizing, convergence, uh, coming together. Uh, and then I... I referred to Mary as Our Lady, and I said, through Our Lord, and I, I bowed my head. Now, the folks on the radio didn't see me bow my head, but you bow with the name of Jesus. Is that blasphemy? Did I? Why would that be blasphemy? Well, because I was kind of doing with a smirk. You to know. you and God? <laughs> I don't know. You and who? I was trying to be a little too clever, I think. To yourself. Um, I don't know. To myself, I was being clever. <laughs> it was terrible. It was terrible. Uh, oh, my goodness. I, Lord, I, I repent of approaching you in a way that was anything other than reverent and humble. Lord, for my irreverence, forgive me, Lord. Um, now I have to go to confession. See? There's the Why? That's not like a mortal sin. Yeah, but that was another reference to the traditional Latin mass emphasis. <laughs> Come on. You can tease and not sin, right? You can be joking oh, and I know. not godly joking. See, this is the, it's a hard one. That's a hard this one. This is the difficulty of trad is sins are forever showing up. Yeah, it's uh, you. I, uh, it's one of those things. Um, I remember reading um, a moral theologian who was reflecting on the approach towards sin that was prevalent in the um, in the 1900s, but towards the middle of the 1900s, there were manuals that priests were given. Uh, well, they were trained in the seminary in terms of how to hear confession and how to teach about sin. And I can remember reading through them, and I just felt like a complete, like, sinner <laughs> i'm like that's a sin that's a sin that it's like it, these poor people would like stumble into mortal sins it would seem so there was sort of an inflation of mortal sin like an inflation of the number of sins the the ease at which people would fall into them etc but um the the point is that there was definitely a sense of um an acknowledgement of the nearness of sin to one's life the need to take that seriously and to, to be ruthlessly battling against sin as a way of expressing one's devotion, commitment, and love for the Lord. But I, I don't think that that second portion maybe was always apparent or was always present or was always emphasized. The love for the Lord. Yeah. It was more about just your state of action and... Well, you know how you and I talk an awful lot, like what's one of the basic distinctions that we talk about quite a bit in terms of how we relate to our kids and how we relate to parenting decisions and how we see and what we notice first and what we call out, it's gifting gap. And uh, gifting gap is all about what do you see? Do you see how far they've come and, and all the ways that they're expressing the goodness that they are and the gift they are, or are you noticing the gap, how much further they have to go? And it's not as if one is right and one is wrong in any particular instance, but that it's, it's, it's a consciousness. And it would seem to me that if the folks that are like natively part of the traditional Latin mass communities tend towards recognizing the gap, that's how they've been formed, their consciousness, um, where those who are growing up in the post-Vatican II church, heard all about God's unconditional love, right? God made me, God doesn't make junk. Do you remember that poster? No. <laughs> oh, Don't worry. Okay. I did not I think... have that hanging in my bedroom. <laughs> okay. That was, that was like, it was next to the banner, the felt banner and all the other, other things going on. But it was, it was all about God's unlimited love, God's unforgiving, uh, uh, unforgiving, <laughs> uh, um, what's the word? 
I don't know. Un, not unlimited. God's uh, unlimited love was one of the words. It was kind of a fresh way of saying um, God's unconditional ending? love. Unconditional. Unconditional, unconditional love. Okay. And um, and so that tended to say, it's all gift. It's all gift. Don't worry about the sins. God is so forgiving and merciful versus God is a God of justice and take seriously the fact that God takes you seriously. So it's hard to have those two live together well. It is. It is. I was just... Uh, on Facebook, and I saw a post where someone posted, you know, come to church if you're cohabitating, if you're living in like a homosexual relationship, if you are, if you have addictions, come to church, you're welcome here. But it never said to, you know, what Jesus says to um, the lady. when The he, woman caught in adultery, yeah, John 8. He's like, you know. Yeah. Has anyone condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But they kind of don't they remember stop at the first part. Last part of right. that. They it's stop like, they stop at the first part, which is neither do I condemn you. But they forget that last one. Yeah, and I, so I I like the idea of yes, we need to come to church. It's for the the broken and the ill and the 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 sinner, the one who needs a, a doctor, the great physician, but it forgets the second part of but you need to be repentive and turn away and and what i loved about father gordon's homily that he gave this sunday is he really got to the heart of sin and it was a beautiful display of how he saw his relationship with with christ which you don't often see but it was why would you sin when you know or he he was talking about I don't want to get this wrong, but he was saying like, once you know you've done mortal sin or a terrible sin, then you're just like, well, you know, I've already sinned. I might as well sin more. So once I said to my wife, you know, some some mean thing, then I might as well just lay on other things I think about her because I know I have to go That's to confession. Not like, I'm not like that at all. No, no, I know most people aren't, but he was just saying he wanted us to look at the heart of right. the action. Do you realize yeah. it's not that you're doing wrong, it's that you're hurting Jesus, that you're hurting God the Father, that you, it was about the relationship. And it was a beautiful display of his relationship with the Father, how much he desired us as his flock to love the Lord, to to yep. cherish the Lord, to not, you don't sin because you're afraid of getting in trouble or the damnation or, you know, not being able to fill in the blank. It was because you're hurting that well, relationship. Most of all, because they have offended you, my God, yes. who are all good and is deserving of all my love. Right, so that's that's where we we really begin with contrition is with the reality of uh, do I am I passionately in love with the Lord and do I realize that sin is breaking His heart more than breaking a law? It's breaking a heart. Not, I don't want to break the Lord's heart. So when your your chair squeaks, I know it's terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> Are you trying to adjust? I gotta get some oil down here. So I was thinking about that post I saw on Facebook. Do these people? that they're referring to that need to come to mass, but they're cohabitating, they're living together, which is a common thing in um, those who have left the church. Do they realize, or is that not our job to help them realize, or do they see the heart of God? I mean, I really feel like, you know, the, these posters, or if, you, if you're a traditional Latin, it's really about your heart posture. It's like, do we remember? Do we love? Do we have that awakening? To, to God, and that's a grace. I mean, it's not necessarily a given. Here, here's how I would say it. Um, we were talking, I, I had to seek some counsel regarding um, one of our kids living in a situation of sin and uh, in a sinful relationship and a sinful approach to life. And what the guidance I got had two points to it. The first point was that if you want to be a support for your child to exit that lifestyle. Never encourage, promote, uh, uh, support, or um, uh, or celebrate their decision, their lifestyle choice. But always um, make a distinction and say that while I love you, I do not support that. I will never. I will never accept that or celebrate that in your life, as long as that's your job. So that's the first point. And you know how hard that is? Yes. Again, it's it's so easy and even trite to say, love the sinner, hate the sin. But to actually live that out and say, um, I will love you 
but I won't celebrate that. And the, so the second piece of counsel. How about or, just I won't accept? I won't accept that or acknowledge. And, 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 which then is, they, and they come back and they'll say, "Well, then you don't accept me." Yeah, and w- which is what they feed you in counseling sessions. When your child is going through trauma of some sort, they're like, "You just have to acknowledge them. You just you have to accept them for where they're at." And I we just had the hardest time with that word. Well, they would use the word validate, and and there was such a difference between saying validation means acknowledging the fact that this is their experience and validate means um, saying that what you're actually choosing to do is uh, is healthy and life-giving. That is such a subtle but important difference. So I can validate and say, I hear you. What you're saying is that this is your experience and you experience this as good. Do you feel validated? Do do you understand that I I know what you're experiencing? Yes. I believe it's sinful and it leads you into spiritual darkness and I will never celebrate it. So I validated it, but I didn't embrace, celebrate, promote, advance. Yeah, it's just so fine. It's just a fine point. And I don't even know if the counselors or therapists get that point. I don't even know if they they acknowledge. Well, you know. They don't even acknowledge Right, counselors. (laughs) They're just like, your truth is your truth. And... Well, and, and unfortunately, that would be a lot of the other guidance that, uh, in this instance, our, our, our daughter was getting was, oh, your parents will come around. Your parents will eventually, uh, don't worry, my parents will like that too, and now they, now they celebrate it. And uh, I, we, I let, we let our daughter clearly know, we will never come around. And, and the beautiful thing was using a line that um, she had written to me in one of her letters, which was, thank you for loving me enough to not let me get away with things you know are not good for me. Thank you for loving me enough to not get away, to, to not get away with things that you know are not good for me. And so I would quote that line back to her whenever she would bring that up. I would just bring up the, that line and then she was stopped because she was like, okay, I get it. So I, let's you can keep coming back to this if you'd like, but... I love you enough not to let you get away with this. And then um, the second one was don't make it the cent- don't make that sinful situation the center of your conversation. Don't think that oh send them a YouTube video, send them an article, send them some oh, other. Oh wait, thing. I wasn't supposed to do that. Yeah, I, I told you that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but there's some really good YouTube and, videos. And what's the idea is that parents have this desire that says, I'm going to force into their consciousness sources of information that will disrupt and replace that idea that's in their mind that what they're doing is is good and ought to be celebrated when in fact it is evil and is leading them into bondage and darkness. I know, but some of these people can make the argument so well, so so clearly, much better than I can. So I figure they will listen yeah. to this YouTube video. So what um, what the counselor said was preserve the relationship by focusing on aspects of the relationship where that child, that person knows, I see you and I love you in this part of your life as as the person that you are in, in these things. But let's not go over there and focus on that part of your life because you know where I stand. So I don't need to bring you YouTube videos and articles and other things because you know exactly where I stand and how I stand. So uh, I'm not saying that that's perfect counsel and guidance, but it's, um, yeah, I find it. I found. I find those as beautiful guardrails, very helpful for me in terms of staying in the relationship. Um, that it's it's a way to um, it's a way to find a path forward when it's really, really, really difficult to do that. So, wow, Carrie, this is a little bit. No, we are a little. This is a far cry <laughs> from. This is the all about your prayer. Program. That you did this prayer that was a little bit. I know. Iffy. Yeah. Or you were. Well, I was I was attempting tongue in cheek in the actual act of praying itself. Sorry, Lord, to blend together a charismatic approach to prayer and a traditional approach to prayer, and that was supposed to be a nice, simple, short lead-in to an article. Tradismatic. Tradismatics. Trentecostalism. I've never heard of trentecostalism. It, not, not, it's 
Kerry. Did this author make up that word? Yes. He oh, made okay. up tradismatic. Well, <laughs> what is tradismatic? Wait, do you think he also made up that yes, word? Yes, of course he well, did. Well, then he's a good author. He's like coming up with words, well, blending. Well, put it this way. Maybe it's being used at Steubenville, but it's obviously it's traditional and charismatic. Tradismatic. And it's Trent, the Council of Trent, and Pentecostalism. Okay. So you have Trentacostalism. It's, it's actually pretty clever. Uh, the guy works for the St. Paul uh, Biblical uh, Society or something like that. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern along with my lovely wife, Carrie. Uh, today we are talking about, um, I think we're just talking about things that in some ways just don't seem to always fit together. Things that, um, that often appear to be opposite, but they don't have to be. And so... Um, Today, we're focusing in on um, the way in which uh, folks who are drawn to the traditional Latin Mass are often put in uh, an opposite place uh, as those in the church who are um, open to the Spirit in terms of like the charismatic renewal. And um, it's something that uh, I think that at a very popular level uh, is often the case. It's often the case that those who are very, very strongly drawn to the traditional Latin Mass have a tendency to be um, very organized, focused, structured um, in their worship and their way of um, relating to God, very traditional in the sources that they lean on and look to. And that can run in, in divergent ways with people who are like looking towards things that came from the Second Vatican Council. Like the, the Catholic Charismatic Renewal emerged in 1967 um, at, at a small retreat house outside of Pittsburgh where um, some college students were having a retreat and they were reading a book by David Wilkerson um, on the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think it was called the cross and the switchblade. And um, and in it, he describes this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it ended up, um, it ended up that that Saturday night where they were praying. They were the story is that they were drawn back to the chapel, and then they one at a time began to experience this um, release and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And um, this charismatic renewal, which had been um, emerging throughout uh, the century, finally r- arrived at, in, in not an official way, but in a way that was more visible and began to be accepted in the, in the Catholic Church. And so that was, what, 55 years ago. Um, oh, is it 55 years? 55? Yeah, it'll be 60 years. Yeah, 55 years ago. Wow. And so, um, so the, it was at the Ark and the Dove Retreat Center, and so, in fact, Carrie, a few years ago, they ended up buying the Ark and uh, the Charismatic Renewal, um, raised funds and bought the Ark and the Dove Retreat Center in order to make it a sort of historic landmark in the Catholic Charismatic <laughs> Renewal. Did you know that? No. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. So, Carrie, when I think about, uh, it's, this is a really interesting question, would you say that the traditional Latin Mass um, has had an impact in your life, or the Catholic Charismatic Renewal has had an impact on your spiritual life as a Catholic? Um, you know the right answer is yes. I'm I just not, want you no, to say yes. No, I get to, you ask, I get to answer oh, it the way I want. It. I, the I most transformative, to... powerful impact was definitely the Charismatic, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That just changed me. But I was like 12 years old. Um, I think the traditional Latin Mass has brought me to the depth and the beauty of the Eucharist that I didn't realize until I witnessed the liturgy in the way that it was so reverent and holy, profound, elevated. I don't know, the things that we've talked about in previous programs. Well, here's one thing. This is just one simple gesture. I remember when we were, it was Divine Mercy Sunday, and we went to, it was considered a pontifical high mass. So it was a really particular, it was a distinct form of the high mass at St. Joan of Arc. And the number of times that the priests genuflected, 
was like every time they crossed in front of the tabernacle, they put that right knee all the way down and touched the ground. They genuflected. And it wasn't only them, but every altar server, uh, altar boy that was up in that sanctuary, any time that they crossed in front of the, the tabernacle, there was this genuflection. Now, you have to know, so, Carrie, I was spending five years in the seminary. Um, one of the, let's see, one of the, this might sound really silly, but one of the things that would be a cause of, like, drama in the seminary was something like, during the Eucharistic prayer, do you stand or kneel? Isn't that crazy? But when I was in Rome at the North American College, when we were there, there was this drama uh, and sort of controversy around what's the proper posture of seminarians in the assembly during Mass. And you'd end up having this like liturgical battle take place in front of your eyes because um, during the Eucharistic prayer, you'd have probably two-thirds of the guys standing and one-third of the guys kneeling. And it, do you... What would be the arguments that you could say for one or the other? No, oh, I don't know. Well, the kneeling, <laughs> just, well, the kneeling one is I mean, easy. Like, the kneeling them, one is but... the proper posture, right? Uh, but the standing one was, well, you're going to be a priest someday, and so you should be st- getting used to that posture of standing during the Eucharistic prayer. That was the idea. Well, at least you had a good excuse. In our church, it was... I don't even know how we ended up in different postures. And then I didn't realize that our like our local diocese would do things differently than a diocese in Kansas or in Nebraska or in Florida. Yeah, I remember in the state of Washington, the bishops decided, this is like in the like in the first decade of the of the 2000s, uh, they decided maybe it was a little after that, right around then, they were saying that um, after after you receive communion and you come back to the pew, you should remain standing. And wait till everybody receives communion, then you kneel. That way, going to communion isn't just a, an individual act, but it's a communal act. And uh, and I remember that was a policy for quite a long time in the state of Washington until eventually like, a bishop in one of the dioceses said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And so after you receive Holy Communion, you can go kneel or sit. If you want to stand, stand, but it, you know, it leaves it up. So you can see how, where's the emphasis? Like, what is the action that is um, is being put at the center of attention? And so the, the reverence being shown to the Eucharist through the genuflections of the priests and the servers, the, the altar boys, the way in which Holy Communion is only given out by a priest, and it's given out to uh, a communicant who is kneeling at an altar rail and receives on the tongue. And there's the sense of that the priest is giving communion across across the the distance that exists between heaven and earth. That the priest is there coming from heaven to bring the the gift of Jesus to you, and 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 you are a recipient. You are a, uh, you are not an uh, actively taking, but your action is to be open to receive. And it's in that humble act of receiving that you are um, uh, displaying this sense of, uh, uh, I am reverently uh, acknowledging the one who is coming to me. I'm just so much more fully involved in the liturgy at the Latin Mass. And I feel like I take it seriously and my mind and heart is more attuned to what's going on. Kind of like I don't have to try so hard to be involved, but yet it is caught, it asks way more of me to be a part of that. I don't know if that makes sense. But I think even back to time when we first We'd gone to a couple of Latin masses, but I just felt like when we went that particular Sunday, the Divine Mercy Sunday, there was, it was something like the empowering of the Holy Spirit. When that happened to me, it was this encounter with Christ that was meant to be at that moment and at that place and in that time. I do feel like 
that moment of going to that mass, my eyes were opened to something that I just didn't know was there in a whole new way. And it wasn't encountering. I don't necessarily feel like everyone who goes to the Latin mass is going to have that encounter in that same way. It was just a very unique individual call from the Lord to us to say, I'm calling you to come, to come. Not not just like come to this mass, but like leave the Seattle area. So I guess I don't want people to be discouraged if they go to the Latin mass and they don't have this wow experience. But I have heard many people share in a similar way. It was almost like this... Um, Scales falling from the eyes or transformation no, or... It was the beauty and the and the depth, just the richness of what was happening was made, the veil was lifted. So I've I don't been, know I've been reflecting on this, um, Carrie, that uh, it's the, the, the nature of God, God is so big that there are concepts that you attempt to uh, use as a way of understanding who God is, but because God is infinite, you can have two concepts that appear to be essentially contradictory, but they both have a place in understanding who God is. So for instance, when you think of the liturgy and you think of um, the traditional Latin Mass and the, in the Novus Ordo, right, the Mass that most folks are, listening, are attending, is God accessible or is God inaccessible? Right, that, that those are two ways of talking about God that you really don't think of. Is God accessible? Like, can you access God, or does God uh, is God the one who's ever beyond you, who is infinitely beyond you and mysterious and transcendent? And the beauty of the Mass is that you simultaneously are drawn into an encounter with the inaccessible God who has become accessible. You have come into contact with the accessible God who reveals his inaccessibility. How about that for ways of talking about God? So how is God accessible? Well, he's accessible in in the word. He's accessible in the community. He's accessible in the priest, but he's most profoundly accessible. He becomes accessible. We We can arrive into a point of contact and nearness with him in the Eucharist. Look how accessible he is. He is so accessible that he becomes um. Uh, 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 what's the word? Um, he, he becomes a source of food for us. E- I was going to say eatable, right? Edible. He, he, he becomes consumable. He is so accessible that he becomes consumable. And yet, when you think about the concept of the sanctuary, where the priest who's dressed in special vestments goes up into a sanctuary, and then they close the uh, the altar rail, and so there's this sense of distance. And then there is, even in the sanctuary, the steps up into the highest place in the sanctuary. And then you have elements that are inaccessible in the liturgy itself, like, for instance, the language. The, the very language itself, the fact that the, the Mass is said in Latin, it's inaccessible to those who are there who only understand English or whatever their native tongue is, but they're not understanding the Latin. And I was talking with a Latin teacher at the Oaks. He, he, was, he goes to Catholic Mass, and he went to the Latin Mass at St. Joan of Arc, and he said, on the one hand, I felt really sad because I'm following the text, and I understand it because he reads Augustine in Latin. He reads the original text in Latin. So he really, really, really understands what's being said and prayed at the traditional Latin Mass. And he's like, I wonder, I wonder about this. I wonder about how, like, uh, why is this the case that you Catholics are praying, or we Catholics are praying a liturgy, and I'm the only one in the room that understands it. And my answer was and is, well, the language of Latin in part is showing us that God is inaccessible. There's a mystery to God. There's a a beyond-your-grasp quality to who God is. And thanks be to God, we come into contact with that God at Mass. 
Because too often we make God so small. What we expect of God is so little. What we imagine God to be is so minimal that he's in our grasp. And having Mass in Latin, having the priest turn from us and perform the essential center of the liturgy in a way that is hidden from us is something quite important, I believe, at a theological and spiritual, in a spiritual way. I feel like that is, what you just said is really profound and it helps, it helps me to receive the prayer of the mass in a more um, fitting space. I also long for understanding what's going on or I long for worship. I do long for that Holy Spirit empowerment. Something what you'd say the charismatics are more linked to is praying with, praying over, praying for healing, seeking the Lord, <laughs> going to all night prayer meetings. I, there is a way in which I am so drawn to the Holy Spirit and to the sense of God is right here in our presence and he is, um, I guess it's it's not like it can only happen in certain Certain, um, Carrie, I love what you just said. Because, I don't know how to explain it. I well, just no, we're, long we're, for we're it. coming up to a break here, and when we come back, I want to now do the same thing we just did regarding the Latin Mass, but let's do it regarding the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. Because again, these two have often appeared as opposite or opposed, and, and you can't be both charismatic and drawn to the Latin Mass, but it's actually just the opposite of what's happening today. And I think that this is. This is like the next wave. This is the next thing. I, I really do believe that. And I'm not the only one. We'll be back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you today. I'm with my wife, Carrie. Appreciate you guys uh, joining us uh, today and every day on the program. I do encourage you to go to mycatholicfaith.org where you can sign up for the podcast version, the Dr. Tom Curran podcast. Love to be able to hear from you. You can contact me on mycatholicfaith.org. Also, free resources for you, free downloadable resources available to help you grow in faith. Carrie, we started the program and referenced a, an, artic, uh, an article in the journal, online journal. Uh, they also have a print version, but the online version of First Things. If you go to First Things. Dot com, firstthings.com. The name of the article is Tradismatic Trentecostalism. I, I still think that's really clever. By a fellow named Clem, uh, Clement Harold. And I mentioned that he um, he works for the St. Paul Biblical Center or Center yes. for Biblical Theology. Yes. Um, for Biblical you know who started that? That's no. Scott Hahn. That's Scott oh, Hahn's okay. um, organization. And so. Uh, that obviously is connected to the Franciscan University of Steubenville. And what this guy points to is the fact that at Franciscan University, you have a bunch of students who are there who are charismatic or who are drawn to charismatic praise and worship. I think our daughter would be one of them. Right? I wouldn't call her necessarily charismatic, but she talks about, the with enthusiasm, going to these praise and worship nights. What do they call them? Festival of Praise. Festivals of Praise. So did they have them back there when you were there? Yes. They did? Yeah. So what would, what would one of those be like? Uh, worship songs, uh, like a, a prayer prayer meeting. A group of students would be leading worship, and you'd sing several songs that have word of knowledge. If someone sensed God speaking through Scripture or So the charismatic gifts at yeah. were operating. And see, yeah, this is probably... the funny thing. This is the... This you see the commonality here. Like there are so many Catholics who like look at Catholics who go to the traditional Latin Mass and like I don't get it. Like what do you get out of that? Just as there are so many Catholics who look at or they just like look into <laughs> like a festival of praise and they see young people with enthusiasm with their hands raised singing with full voice, uh, swaying and praising and then when the song is over they're praising god out loud using their own spontaneous words and then if the spiritual gifts have been released in this individual they may be speaking in tongues or singing in tongues and and then other gifts that you just talked about a word of knowledge where someone from the stage or someone comes forward and says um, there's someone here who is struggling with this, or God has this word for you, or there's a healing God is doing. And so there's a sense of expectant faith. 
there's words of prophecy, my children, blah, 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 or here's a scripture that I believe the Lord is giving me. So these are all different examples of charismatic gifts at work in a prayer meeting context. And for those of you who haven't experienced that, you just look and say, that is weird. That is foreign. Is that even Catholic? And um, I want to say praise be to God for the Second Vatican Council. Because in Lumen Gentium, that's the dogmatic constitution on the church, uh, it was one of the first documents um, that was um, ratified in the Second Vatican Council. There was a debate that went on. And the debate that went on was around the way in which the Holy Spirit was at work in the world today. And the debate was around the question, are there still charismatic gifts operating in the church today? Or are the gifts in the graces that the Lord is pouring upon the church coming through the hierarchy alone? And that would mean through the sacraments. So through the sacraments and through the hierarchy versus, no, the Holy Spirit blows where he wills. And he, yes, of course, works through the institution of the church, but he also works in a complementary way by stirring and raising movements that will help foster reformation and renewal and growth in holiness of the institution itself and, for, and of all the laity. And, and the answer was yes. The charismatic gifts ought to be expected to be operating today, even among the laity. And it was just a few years later that the, the Catholic charismatic renewal um, emerged in the Catholic Church, and it became the biggest movement in the church by far. There was something like 100 million Catholics that were touched by the Catholic charismatic renewal around the world. That's a lot of people. That is, well, it's like 10% of the Catholics in the world were touched by it. And that, what that often means is touched by the baptism and the Holy Spirit. And you hear that phrase, baptism and the Holy Spirit. And guess what? It's a very traditional idea. It's a very traditional idea. It's biblical, but then the biblical meaning of it as it appeared in the history of the church back from the time of the fathers down through history is this sense of a special anointing that the, that the Lord grants in such a way that the Holy Spirit becomes stirred in the baptized believer, the confirmed believer, such that the gifts and graces of baptism and confirmation become released in new ways, in unexpected ways, in ways that were present but not yet yielded to. And so this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not like a parallel to the sacraments. No, it's frankly a recognition that, hey, how many of you when you were confirmed experienced what the apostles experienced on Pentecost Sunday? And the answer is almost none of them. Almost none of them visibly experience this sense of the fire of God has now been released within them and came upon them and they feel empowered to then go forward and live their life of faith. So for me, baptism in the Holy Spirit happened when I was 20 years old and it changed my life. It changed my life. It happened at a Catholic charismatic prayer meeting for young adults. We prayed with the priest who was directing the effort and it released within me gifts and graces that uh, were literally transformative, changed my life, set me free. Things that you just don't hear typical, typically Catholics talking about, like you said the word healing. And, and for me, healing of emotions, healing of memories, healing of brokennesses in my heart, in my life, in woundedness or just limitations that the Lord was saying, I'm going to release you. I'm going to break these things open. I'm going to set you free. Uh, that I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to to express the gratitude in my heart to the Lord for the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. And so for me, it's such a sadness. It's such a sadness that the renewal has faded in so many ways as as a movement in the United States. Well, you also wonder how much of that is God's grace being poured out in this portal of 
time, I don't know, I feel like there was a supernatural move and that he did it. And we were just receptors. We happened to be in the right place, called by him to receive these graces. Because I do know a lot of Catholics that have not received it. And why God chose our family the way he did and and in the manner he did and the phenomenal... Tell me more, Carrie. What are you talking about? I don't know. (laughs) You just said that he just chose your family. What are you talking about? being clear? I, I don't know. I just look at the grace that is among my siblings and how much we all love the Lord and still are seeking him and do these weekly Bible studies and feel called to see him move in our church. I mean, there's such common unity and wanting to grow in our faith. I don't know. It's just not usual yeah. in most Catholic families. I was talking with a leader in the, in a, a Catholic leader in the institutional church, right? And he was, he was saying that the biggest difference when he thinks about like, what is it that makes someone easy to work with? in a way that says this person is really going to be someone that we can work with to do something great for God. He said the biggest difference wasn't where they went to school, what degree they got, how smart they were. Uh, it was were they baptized in the Holy Spirit. He said, Who said that this? was the biggest <laughs> difference. Uh, I'll tell you, I don't want to say his name on the air. I'll but tell you what afterwards. kind of position was it or what? He was a leader. He was a leader that interacted with other Catholic church leaders. Oh, got it. Um, got in it. the uh, at the diocesan level and, and had a, a, a bit of national recognition. And um, I can remember him. It's, he said that. It was at a workshop I was doing for, for leaders at, the, at a diocese. And he said to me, because I was doing a, like leadership formation or something like that. And he said, you know, for me, the biggest difference when I think about, am I going to be able to work with this person? Is this committee going to go anywhere? Is, uh, is this initiative going to go someplace? Is, are these people baptized in the Holy Spirit? Because it's like, are they open to conversion? Are they open to the sense that Jesus is real? Do they have the sense of expectant faith that God's going to move in power? Have they experienced God's power coming upon them, at work in them, working through them? And do they approach that uh, their, their entire effort, their, uh, their entire initiative of mission and ministry from the standpoint that the Holy Spirit is alive and we better wait on him and we better move as he leads us, right? You say that stuff out loud. and like, Let's go. And, what and are you, you say, waiting for? Right, what are you waiting for? <laughs> but, but here's the thing. What I just said, how often have you, have you heard that in 30 years of, like in 32 years of church work, if I were to walk into a room and, and just start talking like that in a normal Catholic setting with normal Catholic leaders in normal Catholic positions, they'd look at me like I had like two heads. Like, what are you talking about? That is, That doesn't even sound Catholic. Oh, that's charismatic. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. Well, Carrie, we're talking about the Catholic charismatic renewal as one of the incredible fruits, one of the most transformational fruits that came from the Second Vatican Council. And we're talking about the traditional Latin Mass that came uh, centuries before the Second Vatican Council. After the Second Vatican Council had a time of um, diminishment, uh, a time where it was not um, promoted. Um, and, and, and now we're in a kind of a dramatic time. And dramatic time because Pope Francis has released um, a document and there are other guidance from coming from um, other Vatican officials um, or uh, other church leaders that have diminished the 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 sense of any kind of positive uh, approach towards the traditional Latin Mass as if it is something that is a hearkening to a church that is long gone, an attempt to be divisive and to deny the value of the Second Vatican Council. And honestly, I get it. I get where the Pope would say that because there are some, it's definitely a minority, but sometimes a vocal minority that tend to pit the traditional Latin Mass with a, with a version of Catholicism as if that is the one way of believing as a Catholic, and and expressing faith as a Catholic. Um, And yet, when I think about the gift of one of the the greatest gifts that came from the Second Vatican Council is this Catholic charismatic renewal, when I hear uh, some folks who are great adherents to the traditional Latin Mass mocking the Catholic charismatic renewal, or even calling it demonic um, and so false and Protestant, 
uh, as as disparagements and and uh, deprecating it. Um, I, I, I just word. feel so sad. I just feel so sad because I'm like, you have no idea that it's the same spirit who was released within me in the baptism of the Holy Spirit that gives me that hunger and thirst to encounter him reverently in the liturgy, in the traditional Latin Mass. I think the word I hear a lot is it's emotional, that it's over-emotional. And I feel like the best thing that, one of the best things that has come from that is healing for my own life. It was in encountering the Holy Spirit, there's just a incredible amount of healing that happened in my family where there was a lot of hurt and anger. And then that happening, the Holy Spirit came and there was just this sense of, I love you. I'm sorry I hurt you. A lot of hugging, <laughs> affection, warmth, kindness, generosity. And it just changed our whole family trajectory. And it allowed so much of the, maybe the pain that would have, you know, had crippled me in childhood. It allowed it to be released and for healing to happen in a lot of, most of my siblings. And so sometimes when I encounter traditional Latin families or people, I think, have they been healed? Do they know the freedom and the, the joy of the Lord that overflows when one has been set free by Christ. I think that's where I just like, okay, there's something that's not fully present in that Latin space. However, I love the Latin mass because it gives me such great faith to believe in the Eucharist and to believe in the sacraments. And it's so sacramentally rich. The interesting thing about being at Franciscan University when we dropped off our daughter is I'd never seen this before, but you had, you know, kids that were dressed in t-shirts and shorts and, um, you know, it was summertime, but they also were wearing veils. So they had this kind of casual way of going to church. Not not everyone, just some of them. You know, a lot of the girls were dressed reverently. Um, but there was this casual gathering in the auditorium for mass. And it was reverent. The, the girls, the kids were very reverent. But it had a relaxed slash traditional Latin influence. I don't even know how to explain it. And then after communion, everyone was on their knees. And far after the songs were sung, people were still praying and very reverent. And then a lot of people, mostly everyone, received on their tongue. I I saw, I I wasn't necessarily like saying, oh, they're on their hands, they're on their tongue. But it just seemed like most people were receiving on their tongue. So Carrie, have you ever done this? I don't know. It was just weird. Like, I'd never seen that in Seattle. And of course, Seattle's such a tiny, tiny microcosm. I mean, we think like you, if you're going to church in Seattle and you think that's what the Catholic church is, it is such a terrible (laughs) representation of what real Catholic, what the Catholic church um, communities can be like. And not that, you know, I don't want to say the grass is greener on their side, but as I've traveled around the country, it's like, wow, we are just so uh, casual. Well, I, have you ever snuck onto the Facebook page of Franciscan University because they post their mass. I don't know if you knew that. No, I don't think I Oh, yeah, I look for my daughter. I look for our daughter. (laughs) You go online to look for her. I do, I do. Why don't you just FaceTime her? No, what I do is, well, I actually fast forward to the communion line, (laughs) and I want to, hey, I'm exposed. You're stalking her. I am. Well, I I really do that. That is so sweet. I am. I, I go and because what happens is they're not they're not scanning the assembly right to see who's there, but they're they're showing the act of going to communion. So how many times? I'm not going to tell you. You've done this. I, it doesn't matter. But the point is that when I see these kids come up for communion, it is so inspiring because. First of all, there are all these college kids. The church is full. No, are they really wearing beautiful. long ga- dresses? It's exactly what you said. Or is it some people no, wearing shorts? No, you have, you have the <laughs> full meal deal, kid dressed up in the suit and tie. Yes, I saw that And too. right behind him is the kid who just came in from the flag football game and has on the shorts <laughs> and the t-shirt. It's just so weird. And, and, and you know what? No, no, here's the crazy thing. Then you have... The, the 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 man the young man in the shirt you know the jacket and tie goes up and receives on the tongue, and then the boy that comes in with the t-shirt and the shorts kneels down, 
in, in front of the priest and receives communion on the tongue. So you have this, like, what? Wait a minute. This is puzzling, where, again, almost nobody's receiving communion in their hand. And uh, but uh, that sense of reverence and, and connecting reverence to gestures like dress and how you're showing up. Um, I'd probably say less than half of the girls had um, veils, but there was still it was certainly not one of those things that were like, oh, wow, isn't that weird that one girl has a veil on? But a lot of these college age kids are wearing veils. Did you see Mary Catherine? I didn't. I've never oh, seen okay. her. Well, they're only doing one mass. It's like the this like the ten o'clock mass in the morning or something like that. Yeah, or the she noon won't mass. be at that one. She yeah. bit the noon probably. Well, it, she yeah, it, but uh, I it, it's a very inspiring thing. I do encourage folks go to the Franciscan University of Steubenville Facebook page. You can look at the mass and you just be will be blown away. Just blown away. Well, I think this is why this article has come from that. Yeah, from this guy who's going to mass there, and he's seeing these charismatic Catholic ki- these kids, these college age students, who are both immersing themselves fully and joyfully in a charismatic Catholic experience, and immersing themselves fully and joyfully in a traditional Latin mass what experience. Do you, what do you think of his John Henry Newman quote? He does a quote uh, development of Christian doctrine, and it says. One aspect of revelation must not be allowed to exclude or to obscure another. And Christianity is dogmatical, devotional, practical all at once. It is esoteric and exoteric. It is indulgent and strict. It is light and dark. It is love and it is fear. I don't, do you think that? Yeah, that's what I said. It's accessible and inaccessible. It's exoteric and esoteric. What's the difference between so eso exoteric and means exo- that it is on display. Esoteric means that it's hidden and mysterious. Oh, okay. So it's accessible and it's inaccessible. So I didn't even know that quote, but look at that. Isn't that nice that John Henry Newman agrees with me? <laughs> so, um, uh, and he goes on. I mean, he says some good no, stuff. No, but what does he say? Go back and start at the beginning. Say it again. Uh, it says, one aspect of revelation must not be allowed to exclude or to obscure another. Stop. Right there. You shouldn't say that if you're going to embrace traditional Latin mass, that somehow you have to reject post-Vatican II or any Vatican II fruit like the Catholic charismatic renewal and vice versa. Catholic charismatic renewal shouldn't. Um, shouldn't be put as a counterpoint to traditional Latin Mass. So continue, and you could just do the same thing. He's gonna he's gonna say it's dogmatic and it's practical and it's liturgical and devotional all at once. Yes, yes. right. That you, that's a me. How did you remember that quote? Well, you said it. I know, but I said it like two minutes ago. How do you? Okay, never mind. Yes, that's exactly what he said. Um, it's so exo, indulgent and strict. Yeah, right. So you know how I say. As a parent, we're called to lead, provide, and protect. So that means we're called to correct, we're called to connect, and we're called to protect. Okay. And uh, that's all at once. And so one form, one aspect might take an emphasis at a time. So that's this whole paradoxical dimension of our life of faith. So I don't know, Carrie, we're up against the end of the program. I guess the purpose of this whole program was to say God's doing something and, and, and something beautiful and powerful. And and what he's doing is both releasing in this generation the Holy Spirit in a whole new way, like a new Pentecost, baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's something Catholic, you don't want to miss out on. But there's a way in which he's also recur, re, returning us to reverence in the Eucharist at the Novus Ordo Mass, but the traditional Latin Mass is definitely playing a role in that as well. Let's welcome all of what God is doing.